cordial, confident, knowing what to do in the face of demons, sort of. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast in which we are slow walking passage by passage through Dante's masterwork comedy. We are in Canto 21, we're at line 64 through 102. We are in the fifth of the Malabolcha that make up the circle of fraud, the eighth circle of hell, the largest piece of real estate in Inferno. We're going to be frauding for a very long time. We've seen a lot of gross stuff already, and it's about to get grosser. So here we go. Line 64 through 102 of Canto 21. After Virgil had gone on beyond the bridge's abutment and gotten over to the sixth bank, he had to put on his game face. With all the fury and chaos of a pack of dogs let loose on a poor beggar, this order just up and starts his pleading wherever he stops, they sprang out from under the bridge and parried all their grappling hooks at him. But he cried out, None of you better think you can hurt me. Before you stick me with your forks, one of you come over here to hear me out, and then make a decision about ripping me open. They all cried, Send out evil tail! One demon stepped out, the rest stood firm, and came up to him, saying, How's this boy help you? Do you really believe, evil tail, that you see me here having come all this way? My master said to him, yet still safe from all your tricks, without divine will and fate on my side, let us be on our way, for it is willed in heaven that I show another this savage path. At that, the demon's pride fell so fast that he let his hook dangle down to his feet. He said to the others, Don't do nothing to him. At which point, my leader called to me, Hey you! all smashed down among the rubble of the bridge. Now you can come back safely to me. At that, I forced myself to move and came quickly to his side. Then the devils aggressively advanced on us, and I trembled lest they break their truce. One other time, I I saw some soldiers in great fear as they filed out of Caprona, even if under a security pack, because they realized their enemies had surrounded them. I pressed my whole body as close as I could against my leader and didn't even blink in the face of the demon's looks, which for sure weren't very good. They lowered their forks and one of them said, Maybe I should give him a poke in his tushy. And the others replied, Yep, let him have it right in the crack. Told you, vulgar. Weird, funny, strange, odd, demons boiling out, but mostly just plot. And we should stop before we hit the passage line by line and just think about sheer story and storytelling. Think about how many times the story has come to a halt in Inferno, whether from giant similes like with those Venetians at the start of Canto 21, or other times when, for example, Virgil catalogs off everyone you see. This is storytelling. It's storytelling of a particularly low kind, some of it at Virgil's expense and some of it at the Pilgrims. Let's get to the passage itself. It starts, if you remember, at the point at which Virgil goes on. And if you remember, Virgil had told 
our pilgrim to squat down amongst the rocks or an abutment so he wouldn't be seen. Virgil has some sort of fear that the demons are going to come after the pilgrim, basically tells him to go hide. So Virgil goes on over the bridge, comes beyond the bridge's abutment, and he's gotten over to the sixth bank. So he's on that escarpment or that ridge that runs between the fifth and the sixth pit. And here, as the passage says, he had to put on his game face, my rather colloquial way of saying he had to buck up his appearance. So at that moment, with all the fury and chaos of a pack of dogs let loose on a beggar, they come boiling out from under the bridge. And I just want to emphasize in these first 12 lines the drama of this scene. Here goes Virgil. I picture him old and creaky because I want him that way. The passage doesn't say that. But still, I picture the old Latin poet going over the bridge, getting to the far abutment, turning around, putting on his game face, trying to make the best of it. Oh, I got to face this. And then bang, like out of the trap door in a medieval morality play, the devils boil out from under the bridge. It's all fury and chaos. More dog imagery, which we've already seen with that one demon compared to a mastiff. They sprang out from under the bridge, parried all their grappling hooks at him. And then Virgil says, none of you better think you can hurt me. Bold statement in the face of all those hooks. Before you stick me with your forks, one of you come over here to hear me out and then make a decision about ripping me open. This passage is just so dramatic. Faced with all of them, now I know we can stop already here and say how is it that a shade can be ripped open? How can a soul feel pain? That whole bit, as I've told you, is unexamined in Inferno. It will become much more present and much more examined in Purgatorio. And there are reasons for that. One is that it may be that Dante finally realizes it's a problem he's got to answer. But two, the pain suffered by those up on Mount Purgatory is redemptive. It's cleansing. It is the pain that you suffer in order to atone for your sins. The pain has to mean more than just punishment. I realize the pain of punishment does mean something, but I mean we have to have an, a theological, a kind of cosmic explanation for pain up on purgatory. And so we have to figure out how is it again that a soul feels pain? Because if it's salvific, we got to figure out how it happens. But here in Inferno, it's largely untouched. And Virgil, this shade, is clearly afraid of this pack of dogs let loose on him. And he says, none of you better think you can hurt me before you stick with your forks. One of you come over here to hear me out and then make a decision about ripping me open. Remember, I told you that there's a debate about whether Virgil has actually been here before in front of these demons because he told our pilgrim in the last passage, don't worry about it. I can handle this. I've seen this kind of struggle or this kind of scuffle before. And there's a question of, does he mean before the walls of this? Or does he mean he's been here in this pit the last time he made a trek to the bottom of hell under Erichtho's spell? This is a passage that may argue that he's talking about this. Let me explain that. Most modern critics think that when Virgil says, I've seen this kind of scuffle before, he's talking about what happened to them with Medusa and the Furies and all that in front of the walls of this. This may support it here. And most modern critics point to this moment as support for their thesis that he's talking about this back there because 
Virgil doesn't know any of their names. If he had been here before, he probably would know who to call out. He just seems to say, one of you come over here. In other words, get one of you over here. It's Evil Tale, Malakota in the Florentine, but as I translated it, Evil Tale, which is what it means. Evil Tale comes out, but Virgil doesn't seem to know any of their names. It doesn't seem to call any of them out by name, which seems to argue that the last time he passed by here, he didn't have to deal with these demons. And there may be more to say that about that ahead. But for now, let's just go back to my main point, the sheer drama of the scene. And it goes on. They all cried out, send out evil tale. And one demon stepped out, the rest stood firm, came to him and said, how's this gonna help him? Don't you love that I gave that demon a southern filling station accent out of my childhood? How's this gonna help? So what are you gonna do? Um, you should know that the phrase that the demon uses is a little bit compacted. It's a little bit funky. It's low. It's street language. If you wanted to try to give it the flavor in English, instead of saying, how's this going to help him? You might say, how this going to help him? And just drop the verb. The verb's not dropped in the Florentine, but you might compress it a bit, which is what happens to it. And then Virgil starts in with his bit. And this is one I want to focus on. Virgil starts his speech to Evil Tail, to Malakota, this demon who stepped out. And it is quite a speech. Do you really believe, Evil Tail, that you see me here having come all this way, yet still safe from all your tricks without divine will and fate on my side? If the demon speaks in kind of a low, street, vulgar way, Virgil is pouring it on here, and the rhetoric is thick. And that bit that I've translated, that you see me here having come all this way, in the Florentine is so beautifully compressed. It's so learned and compressed. It's really high rhetoric. It's as if, again, to go back to my southern filling station, it's as if, I don't know, some Harvard Don walked into a southern filling station. The guy's like, how can I help you with your car? The Harvard Don started in with, well, my car, my great car over here, which is a chariot that I use to drive myself around. You know, right, that it would have all this kind of weird dynamic to it, and it really does. Virgil says, to come all this way, that's still safe from your tricks, and here, oddly, at the word your, Virgil uses the formal plural your. So he's referring to all of these demons without divine will and fate on my side. And then he says, let us be on our way, for it is willed in heaven that I show another this savage path. This is similar to when Virgil has said before, what is willed in heaven must happen here. That spell he used with Karen and with Minos and with others, it's similar to those moments. And as I said, this whole scene with Virgil is predicated on the development of his character. Robert Hollander thinks that there's a mistake in this bit from Virgil when he says, let us. By using the plural, let us, right there, be on our way, 
Virgil has dropped the hint that he's not alone. And Hollander thinks that this is a mistake and that the next move out of the demon is masterful, not comic. I'm not sure I agree. In other words, Virgil has given away that there's the pilgrim is here and that there's someone else here. And it's a big oops moment. I'm not sure I agree, but let's pass on and see what the devil says about this. At that, the demon's pride fell so fast that he let his hook dangle down to his feet. He said to the others, don't anyone do nothing to him. Again, if Virgil has made a mistake and accidentally dropped the notion that the pilgrim is hiding, then Hollander's point here is the demon is masterfully pretending that he's just let down, that he has no power here, and the demon has heard the mistake let us be on our way when Virgil has hidden the pilgrim and so now the demon is playing Virgil like oh oh let me put my weapon down oh oh I'm deflated I tend to not like that reading of the passage because I tend to like this all as very comic because if you think about it in terms of comic you have again the Harvard Dawn in the southern filling station and then the guy, the, de- the demon, my poor Southern filling station guy, the demon is here. And in my reading of the passage, what happens is basically the demon enacts a moment of impotence. Uh, to put it crassly, the demon was sexually excited and now it's faded out. Thus, the demon's pride fell so fast that he let his hook dangle down to his feet. That's not directly sexual in the Florentine, but I think that there's a way in medieval morality plays and medieval street plays that this kind of sexual joke to let the dagger hang down, to let that happen is all a bit of a joke. And I think that that is better here because it fits in my reading with the low comedy, the low comedy versus the high style. Then Virgil lets the pilgrim have it. At which point my leader called me, hey you, all smashed down among the rubble of the bridge. Now you can come back safely to me. That phrase, smashed down among the rubble of the bridge, Virgil uses a a double wording in the Florentine, quattro, quattro. And it seems to mean sniveling, you know, cowered down way too far. Double word to emphasize it. Virgil is being a little hard on the pilgrim here. It's Virgil who told the pilgrim to go go hide over there. Go get behind that abutment. And now he says, hey, you, you know, sniveling over there in the rubble. Come on, it's safe. Virgil's over mastery of the situation or his preening has led him to put the pilgrim down a bit, which makes Virgil just a little mean at this moment. I always read that quato quato. It's just a little nasty. Hey, you told me to go squat down over here. Don't make fun of me. I'm doing exactly what you told me to do, which brings up that question of effective hierarchy. From the Venetian simile at the beginning, from chefs and their sous chefs holding meat in a cauldron, all of that effective hierarchy, here we have a hierarchy, the leader telling the pilgrim what to do, 
that is not proving effective. And in fact, it would be as if in that earlier metaphor, as if the chef backhanded one of his sous chefs for holding the meat under. This is not quite right. And the hierarchical scheme between leader, and the text makes sure we understand the word here, leader, that the leader and the pilgrim are not exactly in sync. So this is not a proletarian fantasy. This is rather a fractured relationship between the two of them, fractured as it always has been, fractured in the only way that masters and pupils ever ultimately get, and fractured in the way that humans get when they get on each other's nerves and when they're trying to master the situation. You know, listen, I do this all the time. When I am faced at a moment of fear, in my life, I'm afraid of something. Let's say uh, Bruce and I are trying to sell a new cookbook, and I'm very much afraid of how this is going to go down. Are we going to be able to sell another cookbook? You know, you're only as good as your last book. It's an entertainment-based industry publishing is. And I find that those are the moments when I'm afraid when I tend to lash out at the dogs, at Bruce, at friends, at my family. Same here. Virgil is faced with a dire situation, a boiling pack of demons with forked prongs all pointed at him, although one of them has drooped, all pointed at him. And now he reacts in a little peek toward the pilgrim. I think it's all part of the amazing humanness of the passage. Let's pass on. At that, I forced myself to move and came quickly to his side. Then the devils aggressively advanced on us, and I trembled lest they break their truce. So Dante the Pilgrim knows on some level that Virgil may be overstating things, that just because he's made a pact or a truce with these demons doesn't mean it's going to hold. And how does he know that? because he goes back to his own personal life. One other time, the passage says, I saw some soldiers in great fear as they filed out of Caprona, even if under a security pact, because they realized their enemies had surrounded them. He's making reference here to the 1289 siege of Caprona, in which the Tuscan Guelphs basically overran a Pisan stronghold, Caprona. Dante may be telling us, probably is telling us, that he was part of that siege. Interestingly and intriguingly, given the way it works out, Dante here would be one of those enemies. When the Pisan allies come out of Caprona under the security pact, having been beaten and, you know, said, come on out. We're not doing anything to you. you you've put, you know, you're, you, you've been put down. Just come on out. He says they realize their enemies surrounded him. Well, then one of those enemies would be Dante, the Tuscan soldier. If Dante was at this event, that he's identifying himself as one of the enemies. So he knows what it's like not because he's been on the side of Virgil, but because he's been on the side of the demons. He knows exactly what happens in moments like this when you are the conquering or stronger party, what it's like for you. 
and as you surround them. So fascinating. There are reasons, perhaps, why this is here. Does uh, Dante, is he putting this in here, the poet, to say that he's been a good Tuscan? That is, he's fought in the Tuscan Wars, and he's fought on the side of Tuscany as a Tuscan Guelph, and that, therefore, that charge leveled at him that sent him into exile of Baratry is wrong. Don't believe that, because I did my duty for Tuscany. I was part of that. It's the way these three lines are often read, but I'm still intrigued by the fact that Dante has put himself in the place of the enemies, not as in the soldiers filing out of Caprona. While he may be trying to cover himself a bit here, it's a wily inversion, and I would even argue it's a wily inversion with comic overtones by Dante, our pilgrim on the journey to God, is here identifying with the demons in the pit who have all the power. I think we're supposed to smirk. Maybe Dante's trying to say as I've trying to say to us, I've always been a good Tuscan. But maybe there's also a smirk here. And one more thing, and this is the comedy. The personal is the story. This poem begins as a personal narrative because like Augustine's confessions, conversion is the root of the I or the ego story in Western lit. It didn't always come out like this, but once the Christianization of the West happens and post-Augustine's confessions, I narratives are generally either about failed conversions or made conversions. Even if it's about how I gave up drinking or how I came out of an abusive relationship or how I learned to see the world differently. Listen, even in my own memoir, Bookmarked, the personal story is ultimately a conversion story from chaos to some kind of happy ending. It is about the change that happened in me to allow myself a happy ending from a life that almost went down the tubes. That's what my memoir is about. That's what com- because that's what comedy is about, because that's what Augustine's Confession is about, because that is the root of the I narrative in Western culture, and that Dante himself, the poet, feels the need to insert a personal story, perhaps a historical event, his part being part of the siege, the 1289 siege of Caprona from the Tuscan Guelphs and defeating the Pisan stronghold, that he feels the need to insert that here just says to us what we should always think. While we may want this to be literary, while we may want this to be allegorical, while we may want this to be theological, while we may have all of these great structural systems running all around us and hooray for us for having them, in the end, this is a personal story. In the end, this is the story about one guy and the life he lived and how he came out to live a better life. Here's the end of the passage. I pressed my whole body as close as I could against my leader and didn't even blink in the face of the demon's looks, which for sure wasn't very good. They lowered their forks and one of them said, maybe I should give him a poke in his tushy. And the others replied, yep, let him have it right in the crack. This is a very vulgar ending of the passage. It's a little bit over-translated by me, let him have it right in the crack. The Tuscan there is akoki. Uh, it's a verb that means um, fit, 
the notch of the arrow right in the bowstring. So in other words, you could just translate this as, yep, draw your arrow. But akoki has koka in it. And koka, of course, is a vulgarism for your back end. And so I've let the phrase be vulgar because I think that's the intention here, especially when one of them says, you know, maybe I should give him a poke in his rear end. And the other says, yep, right in the notch. You could think that's about the arrow, set the notch into the arrow, but I don't know that they have any arrows. And I think it's probably more about the pilgrim and where he's going to get it, where they're going to poke him, which makes the whole scene absurd. I'm telling you, this is the Three Stooges meets the comedy. That's basically how these scenes go. They're slapstick, they're wild, devils boiling out from under bridges. Oh, and so much more to come. Virgil's confidence, the pilgrim's fear, the pilgrim's mm, distrust of Virgil, the pilgrim's trust of Virgil. Oh, it's all going to come up toward a gigantic climax in this sequence that spans across three cantos of Inferno. Come back. There's much more to be said. Next up on the podcast, we're going to turn away from comedy, and I'm going to do that promised episode about demonology before we come back and finish off Canto 21. So subscribe, like the podcast, find me on Twitter under my own name, at Mark Scarborough. Find me on my website, markscarborough.com. Hey, where this passage lives, this translation, you can see it there. Otherwise, see you next time. I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is Walking with Dante.